Hey guys, welcome to episode 16 of the New Standard Podcast. This week, my guest is Vernon Felton, who works for Pink Bike, but previously was editor-in-chief and a writer for Bike Magazine, a mountain biker. Basically, he's been around writing in the mountain bike industry since 1997. This week, there's a two-part episode And the first part, we talk about an issue that I think is going to be really at heart for a lot of mountain bikers, which is gaining access to trails in wilderness areas. So designated wilderness areas in the United States make about 110 million acres, and mountain biking is currently banned in all of those areas, plus areas that are wilderness studies areas. Basically, they're not wilderness areas yet, but they may become wilderness areas in the future. And Vernon has written pretty extensively on this, and so he's going to talk about how this happened, why he's against that ban, and why is there why is there a ban in the first place? And also... In this episode, we never really explicitly say it, but a couple of weeks ago in my interview with Darren Bearcloth, before the episode, I ranted a bit about how if you are passionate about an issue that you should write to your local government and get involved and do more than just post a Facebook story. And this is a perfect example of something that mountain bikers might find to be an issue that they take to heart. And if you are somebody who's inspired to action by this story, then you should go onto the Sustainable Trail Coalition's website. That's sustainabletrailscoalition.org. And you can find a how to help link at the top. And it will tell you all about how to write to your representative and to your senator about how you support this bill that will potentially allow mountain bikers to access some of these wilderness areas. With that, here is part one of the episode with Vernon. So how's it going, Vernon? Things are doing great. How about yourself? I'm doing great as well. How are you enjoying the summer? I can't beat it. You know, weather's good. Uh, Plenty of opportunity to get out there and, and, you know, ride, hike, fish, all the things I love doing. So yeah, no complaints at all. Awesome. So yeah, the reason I got in touch with you was after you wrote your last Ban in the USA article, which if any of my listeners have not read it yet on Pinkbike, uh, you should hit pause and go read it right now. Uh, read the whole series and then and then come back because it'll give you a little bit of context for this conversation. But yeah, it was after I read uh, that and the other articles, I, I kind of dove into this this issue of the wilderness areas and the new bill that's Uh, up in Congress right now. And uh, yeah, I wanted to have you on because you're, it seems like you're kind of an expert in this. You've been doing a lot of reporting on the, um, the new efforts to allow mountain biking in these wilderness areas. So I'm wondering if you could give just a quick explanation of, of why mountain biking is banned and why you think that it it should be allowed. Okay. Yeah, sure. Well, you know, I think that, uh, you know, most people assume that mountain biking must be banned from wilderness areas because either that was Congress's intent, you know, back in 1964, rather, or they just assume mountain bikes must be, you know, inherently more destructive on the environment or have a greater, you know, impact on wildlife. Uh, but the reality is that, you know, bikes weren't banned by the wilderness back in 64. They didn't exist, of course. 
uh, at the time to be banned. But, uh, you know, truthfully, uh, they weren't banned uh, until 1984, and they're banned in a regulatory fashion. So let's put it this way. Congress actually never sat down and said, bikes don't belong in wilderness areas. What happened is a few members from the Sierra Club and Wilderness Society and a couple other organizations put lobbying the Forest Service um, beginning in the late 70s. Uh, they saw mountain bikes begin popping up in Marin County, and they said, you know, we really don't want to share the trails in wilderness areas with them. They didn't know whether mountain bikes would be disruptive. Um, I'm, I'm going to give them, you know, assume they had the best of intentions in mind. Um, but they, you know, they uh, demanded that the Forest Service change its regulations to ban bikes specifically, because what the Wilderness Act actually lays out is that um, in the Forest Service's original, original regulations were that it banned mechanical devices powered by a non-living source. In other words, a motor, right? So when Congress created the Wilderness Act, they wanted people to get out there and explore, but they wanted to do it on their own power. They didn't want people passively conveyed into wilderness areas. No boats, no cars. They didn't want roads. They didn't want new structures. They wanted to keep these big chunks of America as pristine as possible, and they wanted to get people to explore it in that pristine state. Um, so what happened, though, is that uh, the Forest Service, which is one of the regulatory agencies in the United States that manages wilderness areas, they changed their regulations, and pretty much all the other agencies, such as the BLM, um, Fish and Wildlife, they followed suit, and bikes were effectively banned. Uh, so you can't ride anywhere in the nearly 110 million acres of wilderness in America. Um, there weren't any studies, however, actually conducted at that time back in '84. They just kind of made a gut-level decision based off of, you know, the urgent prodding from the Sierra Club and the Wilderness Society to just ban bikes. But what's happened in the years, if you're getting to the, the next part of the question, which is really why is this perhaps not the best policy, is, you know, we've had numerous studies, you know, uh, probably about a, a dozen uh, in the intervening years uh, conducted by independent sources, not mountain bikers, um, that have actually looked at it and said, well, what kind of impact do mountain bikes actually have? And the reality is the studies, uh, you know, the vast majority show the same thing, which is that mountain bikes have about the same amount of impact, that is erosive impact on trails as hikers, and considerably less impact than equestrians. And horseback riders, uh, for people who may not know, are actually, they have free reign in wilderness areas, despite the fact that they do, in fact, have more of a negative impact on trails. Um, mountain bikes also have uh, no more impact uh, on wildlife and disturbing wildlife than any other trail users. So if wilderness is about preserving the environment, which is a very great thing, and I'm 100% supportive of wilderness, I'd like to see more of it. I think a lot of mountain bikers are in the same boat. We're environmentalists. We want more open space. But if wilderness is fundamentally about preserving the environment, the ban on mountain biking does nothing to further that goal. But what it does is it divides the constituency for wilderness. It creates divisions in the environmental movement, and that's something we can't afford right now. We need as many people advocating for wilderness, and we need as many people advocating, quite simply, to protect the environment uh, as possible. And you know what we have is a policy that's not only unfair to mountain bikers, but on the big picture, it's bad for the environment. Right. And so I want to come back to this issue of kind of environmental groups versus mountain bikers. But what was also interesting to me is that there's this divide within the mountain biking community as well, uh, specifically uh, between IMBA and the STC, though they've kind of, they've come out with some um, uh, joint statements, uh, both supporting each other, but there have been members of both groups who've kind of spoken 
on on either side and uh STC uh the Sustainable Trail Commission is the group that put forward the um the 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 language of the bill that is uh currently up in Congress and so with the kind of current uh election in mind i wonder does this seem to you kind of like a, a hillary versus bernie uh kind of a kind of a fight where there's uh, this upstart who's uh, who's kind of degrading from or, or taking away from the uh the voice of the the incumbent you know that's a great question you know Imbra is a, a phenomenal organization and you know they've caught a lot of flack on this wilderness issue because while they don't support the ban on bikes they do not outright ban, they don't oppose it either. Okay. So, you know, in other words, you're saying, well, we don't agree with it, but, you know, Imba, you know, um, right from the start, you know, in the 80s, you know, the, the, actually the ban on wilderness had a big, uh, was one of the reasons that Imba was created. Uh, but, you know, there are so few mountain bikers in the 1980s that Imba couldn't just say, hey, you know, we're going to go and fight the good fight and take it to these hikers who outnumber us, you know, 100 to 1. So, from the start, Imba's had a conciliatory sort of approach to, to dealing with this, which is to say, they say, well, you know, let's, uh, let's try to be friendly and let's just argue for, or, you know, in some ways almost plead for saving a, a couple miles of trail over here in exchange for losing uh, big chunks over there. In other words, Inville will say there's a popular trail in that wilderness area. Can we create a corridor that allows mountain bikers to continue to have access? Or can we come up with an alternative designation instead of a wilderness that provides similar protection but allows for bikes? And Invitad, you know, there's no doubt Invitad's been successful in preserving trail access. Um, and they've also had two pretty big defeats. You know, so they'll say, well, we preserved 10 miles of trail here, and that is absolutely a laudable goal, but they may have lost hundreds of miles of trail uh, when that area gets designated as wilderness as well. But you know, Imba has been, they, they feel they've been making progress. And uh, and not only that, they've been creating, in their mind, positive relationships with those environmental groups who don't want us to wilderness areas because wilderness is just one piece to the, of the pie, right? There's all sorts of lands that are not wilderness that we're, and mountain would like to have access to. Um, so their policy made sense for years, for decades. Um, you could argue that that policy, and a lot of people, including the guys who founded Sustainable Trails Coalition, SDC, they would argue that that policy doesn't make as much sense now. You know, they're, depending on what estimates you look at, there may be as, million, as many as 8 million mountain bikers in America. So we're not the sliver minority that we were in the past. And, you know, the idea is, well, why are we still kind of coming to the bargaining table and begging for scraps? Why don't we, you know, why don't we come to the table uh, and basically demand to be treated as an equal partner here? Um, and so that's what you have. You have SEC popping up. and I think there are a lot of people who left IMBA um, because they felt IMBA wasn't, frankly, supporting mountain bikers' rights as vigorously as they could. Um, whether that's a fair claim or not, it's debatable. But SEC speaks to a lot of people, and there's no doubt about it. They've raised a considerable chunk of money, you know, well over $100,000 in less than a year's time um, to create that bill. And, uh, you know, I think... To get to your point, there, yeah, there's a bit of a pissy match, right? There's some pretty nasty things being flung within the mountain biking community. And to play devil's advocate, do you think that maybe there is an argument on Imba's side that they're that the STC isn't listening to? Yeah, no, I think it is, and you know, Imba has they certainly have the reasons for staking out the position. You can certainly argue that 
but you know, these guys at Enbo have been doing this for decades. They know something, right? They've been on the ground. They're working with people at the Sierra Club and Wellness Society as well as working with land managers. And there's no doubt that they know a lot of things that a lot of us don't, right? Um, and there's no doubt that they have been successful in getting, you know, rec- national recreation areas, for instance, instead of wilderness areas, um, alternate designations that are preserved mountain bike access. Um, yeah, I think there's something to be said for the argument, uh, but I think here's the larger question, right? We have one mountain biking advocacy organization, really, when you get to a major national one, that is Imbo, right? Um, and it's, that's kind of a silly proposition in and of itself. If you look at the environmental world, if you look at any kind of advocacy uh, organization, we're talking about child welfare, we're talking about salmon, uh, you can talk about all sorts of things. There, there are literally hundreds of organizations, right? And that just makes sense because no group is monolithic, right? There, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense that mountain bikers would all see this from the same position. So to sort of, it was, I think, asking a bit too much of EMBA to represent all mountain bikers. It's kind of unrealistic and it doesn't really exist anywhere else in the world that one advocacy group could somehow, you know, reflect all the varied opinions and a constituency of millions of people. So I look at this and I see, you know, there's some turmoil here, right? There's some people who are really angry at each other, but I think it's something that's, if anything, is kind of late in coming. We should have had by this time, several major mountain bike organizations coming in uh, you know, sort of coming onto the scene, working towards a common goal, not fighting one another, ideally, you know, working towards a common goal of getting more access, but going about it a bit different. Yeah, I mean, and to your point about how many environmental groups are out there, there is currently the Human Powered Travel in Wilderness Areas Act that was put out forth in Congress by Representatives Mike Lee and Orrin Hatch. And as soon as they proposed it, something like 115 wilderness protection groups signed a joint letter condemning it. So I'm wondering if you could get into why there's such a big push from outside the mountain biking community against mountain biking in wilderness areas. Well, you know, so the, you know, the Human Powered Act, uh, and I'm, I'm shortening it here because Dawson wants to hear the entire title of the book. But the act is written by Ted Stroll, the guy who you know helped found STC. And Stroll's a, a lawyer who worked you know in the state supreme court in, in California in the past. He's retired now, but you know he looked at this whole thing and he spent a lot of years trying to work with uh, agencies such as the Forest Service to change their policies. And what he realized as a as a mountain biking advocate and lawyer was that the agencies uh, they deal with so many more environmental organizations who don't want bikes uh, in these areas that there was just, you know, they're, they're entrenched. They, they're not willing to even consider the question of whether bikes belong. So, you know, his whole point was, well, Congress isn't even, a lot of people in Congress aren't even aware that there's a ban on bikes, right? Because as far as Congress is concerned back in 64, you know, and obviously basically no one in Congress uh, left from 64 in our, our current Congress, but as far as Congress is concerned, you know, this wilderness thing is for the people and it doesn't make intuitive sense that bikes would be banned. So, and let's be honest, they've got this ISIS thing, they have Zika. It's not like the world is, uh, you know, sort of revolves around my mountain biker and hiker concerns, right? they got plenty on their plate. Um, so his point was, well, God, people in Congress aren't even aware of it. Ban, and a lot of them wouldn't be supportive of it. If the agencies are blocking us out, then we should go back to Congress. We have no choice. Um, and so that's what the bill is all about. So, you know, they've raised, SEC raised this money, in essence, to hire a lobbying firm 
and the lobbying firm would then take this legislation that uh, Ted Stroll crafted, right? Uh, as a private citizen, you can come up with a legislative proposal and get it in the hands of Congress. Sometimes for good, sometimes for evil. But uh, you know, you can do that. And you got so they hired a lobbying firm, and uh, and you know they went around Congress trying to find someone to sponsor this thing. So you know, this proposed legislation was making the rounds. You know, they tried to find liberal Democrats to sponsor this thing as well. And the bottom line is, you know, if you have all these, you know, more than 100 environmental organizations, and many of them are fairly small, but there are some, some big ones there too. If they've come out and said, no, we don't want bikes in these areas, basically, uh, you know, the vast majority of Democrats, legislators, they won't touch it with the 10-foot pool, which is exactly what happened. The people who are willing to sponsor it in this case, Patch and Lee, have, you know, a pretty dismal record on the environment. I want to say it's about 10%. Uh, the conservation, legal conservation voters has it as a, a lifetime uh, percentage of about 10% on the environment. You can contrast that with Bernie Sanders, sort of our, our token very liberal guy in the United States. You know, as he has 100% record. So you can kind of get a, a, a sense of just, you know, how far to the right actually are generally. Um, so these are the only guys who are willing to sponsor it. Now, the question is are they sponsoring it because are they just like, no, we want people to be out there and, and explore because we think. Lots of regulation is silly and we're Republicans. Maybe they could be thinking that. There's always been a concern that if we even brought this to, to Congress, that it could be used as a Trojan horse, right? That you start, you come up with a piece of legislation that's innocuous, and it says, in this case, as this bill does, that, you know, basically land managers, the people who manage the wilderness areas uh, in our agencies, they have to consider mountain biking as a legitimate um, use. They can say no to mountain bikes in wilderness areas, but they have to at least consider the question. We can't simply have a blanket ban. That's fine. There's a concern, however, is that once you even float that bill in the Congress, someone's going to go and say, hey, by the way, let's tag on a rider that says it's also okay to start fracking in wilderness areas. So let's, you know, let's tag on a rider that says uh, clear cutting is a great thing. In other words, it's become a Trojan horse for environmental devastation. So a number of environmental groups and a number of mountain bikers, I would say even me you know, myself included, have always been concerned that if we went to Congress, that in this climate, uh, where there's so many legislators who really do want to sell off public lands, they want to start, you know, uh, ramping up, you know, resource extraction on these places, that even a bill that was intended to do good could be twisted to really wreck the Wilderness Act. Um, there's also another concern, though, uh, and that is, frankly, just a lot of people don't want us in the wilderness area. Uh, you know, these, let's be let's be blunt. You know, the Wilderness Act has become a way for a small segment of society to have a really great playground. You know, if you're a horseback rider or you're a hiker, this is your playground, and you don't have to see a bike, and you may not like mountain bikers, and you don't have to see them. There are a number of people who simply don't want to give up the primacy position you know, in the outdoors. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, I heard a great quote recently from Heather McGee saying that when you go from a position of power to a position of equality, it feels like discrimination. And I don't want to conflate mountain biking with racial equality, which is what she was talking about. But I do think that there is some of that here. So I'm wondering if you could get into why this animosity against mountain bikers exists. I mean, as you said, there have been maybe a dozen studies since 1984 showing that mountain biking is not more harmful to trails than hiking. And actually, maybe horseback riding is more harmful. 
And also in a review of evidence that I found, the writer pointed out that mountain bikers and horseback riders are more likely to help sustain trails. In fact, the only dissenting opinion I could find is an article written by Michael Vandeman, who's a PhD, but he basically wrote an opinion article where he took all of the evidence shown elsewhere and then kind of like wrote his opinion about that evidence. Right. Yeah. Mike, and Michael Vandeman's got a, a long track record. You know, he's an individual who's, you know, ousted from the Sierra Club because, you, you know, he comes from a very biased position. He also attacked, physically attacked mountain bikers in the Bay Area and, and you know, <laughs> spent time in court. He's, he's an individual who's really well spoken. But unfortunately, um, you know, less than properly hinged. Uh, I, I, and I realize that sounds like well, I'm poisoning the well uh, regarding Michael Bannerman. Um, but the reality is, yeah, he's a, unfortunately a fairly biased person. And so why do we, why do we have these opinions? So why is there, why do they hate malbikers so much? Why does a certain portion of people uh, hate malbikers so much? And, you know, I, I think that it's because I, it's not about the environmental, you know, environmental impact. It's a culture war. Uh, I mean, in the same way that so much of American politics really is. And so often we're really not talking about public policy. We're talking about the groups on either side of a policy, right? So, so often conservatives really, why should conservatives hate in protecting the environment? Uh, so often it's because they don't like the liberals. They don't like the liberals in their fleets, and they don't like the college-educated liberals using the big words and, and their elitist, expensive coffee. There's all sorts of weird connotations that go on that have nothing to do with the policy at hand. And I think, frankly, that's what's going on with, with this, right? There are people who, they made up their minds about mountain biking in 1984 or 1986 when mountain bikes first appeared on the scene. And they've never really bothered to ask whether those opinions were grounded in fact or, you know, you know in their mind, we're, we're all knuckle-dragging sort of, you know, chocolateites that destroy the, the earth. And, you know, they're not clued into the fact that, you know, God, we've, we were never that, we were never what they thought we were, but, you know, we've spent decades proving that we could be amazing trail stewards. And so many of these places, you look in Montana where mountain bikers are being kicked out of wilderness study areas at an amazing rate, hundreds of miles of trail being single-tracking and lost mountain bikers. Who are the, they, in, in so many of these places, mountain bikers are the primary stewards, the primary trail maintainers. Uh, and they vastly outnumber hikers, and they're being picked out. But if you ask a hiker, well, you know, they're, they're assuming that we don't do any trail work, or we, you know, that we're again anti-environmentalists. So it's it's a notion about mountain biking that is incredibly outdated. Now, to be fair, it's something that I think a lot of mountain bikers don't talk about. If we just sat down and looked at a lot of websites, looked at a lot of advertising, you know, what? How how is mountain biking sold to the general public? Well, oftentimes it's sold in sort of like a pretty aggressive way, right? Guys in full-face helmets, uh, body armor, ripping down a hillside. That's pretty scary to someone walking uh, up a trail. Now, there's a disjuncture. A lot of those photos are shot at downhill races, at ski resorts. They're, they're shot on trails where that kind of riding is, uh, you know, is ordained, right? It's designed, the trail is designed for that in a private place. It's not a public place, but does a hiker know that? If they just flip onto, you know, a, a website and they see a guy who looks like he's, you know, a motorcyclist carrying down a hillside, you know, they think, well, I don't want to see that. Well, I don't think any of us are proposing that in wilderness areas. Um, 
you know, that is not actually mountain biking for 99% of mountain bikers. Yeah, to that point, many hikers who I've interacted with, especially when, I mean, I'm from Santa Rosa, which is in the North Bay Area near San Francisco, and there was a proposal to ban riders on the trails in the local state park there uh, while I was in high school. And what I found a lot of hikers said is that essentially riders are scary. I mean, we're fast. We wear protective gear. It makes it kind of standoffish. I mean, we're not really stopping and like having a conversation on the trail. And even worse were for horseback riders or equestrians where the horses get skittish when riders go quickly mm-hmm. past them. Sure. And there, and yeah, and there can be public education that, that that's always an ongoing need, right? Like, you know, mountain bikers need to know how to deal with horses, need to know to get off, need to know to calmly speak to the horseback rider. And, and, and I get that, but here's an interesting question. Those are, I, I, I completely understand where people are coming from that we seem scary, but then on the flip side, what does the mountain bikers see? Do they see, and you know, I grew up not terribly far from you in Northern California and, you know, I was used to hikers. You know, I could come up and slowly roll up to them and say, hello, and how are you? And, and being yelled at by hikers who felt that we didn't belong on the trail, even though it was a legal trail. Um, you know, had, how about horses? I mean, I like horses, but let's be honest. A lot of times people can't control them. It's a pretty flighty animal that can hurt folks. Uh, couldn't a mountain biker look at the hiker or the equestrian and go, wow, there's hikers walking three abreast with their dogs running around the trail. This is kind of dangerous. I want to get past them. Or couldn't they see the equestrian and think, oh, my God, I sure hope that horse doesn't go out of control. And I think that's really the root of my opposition to the ban is that you know, public policy is supposed to be objective. It's supposed to be fair and neutral. You know, In this case, if we're talking about wilderness, our public policy should ensure that it's protecting the environment. And, uh, you know, and, and that we're it, trail users are appropriate on a given trail. Um, that's not what the ban on mountain biking is about. The ban on mountain biking is saying one group of people don't look like another. And they've gone to federal agencies and they've gotten them to essentially create regulations that ban a, a legitimate user group because the other group doesn't like them. In other, in other words, bluntly put, hikers just don't want to share. And, you know, that's that's not good enough. I, I I have a master's in public policy. I worked in state government in Sacramento. I worked in uh, city government in San Francisco. I mean, as a policy wonk, as someone who had a degree and had a career in politics, it boggles my mind that we accept this is okay. This is exactly the opposite of what public policy is supposed to be. Um, and I, I find that problematic. So to lighten this up just a little bit, I'm wondering if you have... <laughs> Yeah, if you have any success stories to give riders hope for the potential for mountain biking to gain access to trails. My my God, man, yes, of course. You know, and this is the thing that gets me. Like, you know, I live up in Bellingham, Washington, and I moved here, you know, really purposely. I, I lived in Northern California, and, you know, I grew up there. I moved up to Humboldt County. It's a beautiful place in Northern California. But it, it was really hard. You know, trail access is still, despite all the, you know, the open space in California, it's, it's just, man, you, you can go to a million meetings for months and months and years and years and just never, ever gain a bit of traction anywhere. And, you know, I, you get to a point as an adult and you're like, do I want to fight this fight forever? It sure doesn't seem like it's changing. You know, I moved up to Washington state and 
you know, up here in Bellingham, I don't want to say we have unicorns and magic fairies and all this kind of like some magic kingdom, but it's kind of mind blowing, right? Like up here where I live, and, you know, I live at the base of the mountain, Galbraith. And, you know, mountain bikers are the primary trail builders. We're responsible for all the trail building and maintenance. There's 60 miles of single track. It's all built to Emba standards. It's incredibly sustainable. It drains well. It, you know, it's, it's, it's fantastic. And trail users are happy. We have, you know, we have trail runners everywhere with dogs. We have people with baby strollers. The trails are designed to reduce trail user conflict, which is the key thing, right? The bulk of trail conflict isn't because these groups don't belong on the trail together. The bulk of trail conflict is because, you know, in, in Northern California is a great example of this. There are so few trails and you're funneling so many people on to the small little chunk of land. Well, of course, there are going to be run-ins and conflict. That's just a recipe. Again, that's poor public policy. That's a recipe for disaster. If you open it up and say, well, some trail users belong on these trails and others on these, and you give people opportunities, you know, they wind up getting along really well. And, you know, up here, it's, it's, it's fantastic. We have a really great community. The vast majority of trail building is done by mountain bikers. And I think, you know, here mountain bikers are seen as, you know, a legitimate environmental force. Uh, and, you know, and it's, phenomenal over the border in Vancouver. It's a really similar story. You know, the, the city completely grasped the fact that mountain bikes bring our form of ecotourism and that, you know, we can have all these different trail users on this big trail system, as long as we design it intelligently. So, and you know, there's a, there are a number of places where I think this is true. Brevard in North Carolina has got great, a great system, the kingdom trails in Vermont. You know, here's the thing. We have all these success stories, park city, Utah, I mean, yeah, there's a ton of really great positive stories. And that's maybe the most frustrating thing about this band. This band is rooted in 1984. It's like stuck in amber, right? It, it ignores the reality of the past 30 plus years. That I think is the kind of frustrating thing is, yeah, we have success stories everywhere. And there are just some people who haven't paid attention to that. They're kind of locked in this mindset from decades ago. And, it, you know, it's time for change. It's time for them to recognize that mountain bikers have proven themselves. And this is completely unnecessary. If you like what you've heard so far, then I encourage you to go check out part two of this episode, which is up on iTunes or Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts right now, uh, where Vernon and I talk more about his career and his approach to writing about new standards in the mountain biking industry. So see you all in part two.